you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. It's Film Week on L.A. as 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com and the co-host of the Breakfast All Day YouTube and podcast series. Also with us is Leah Lowenstein. And we begin with My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3. Nia Vardalos is back as the star and the writer-director of the third in the series. Leo, please tell us about the romantic comedy and whether it hits similar notes to the first two. Let me just say this was not my favorite of the series. Uh, it, it was weaker than the original, which came out in 2002, and the sequel, which came out in 2016, for a few reasons. The original, by the way, was one of the biggest romantic comedies of all time, and it's impossible to overstate what a phenomenon it was. It was a sleeper hit, meaning it was made for under $5 million. It was uh, it, it came out in the summer against a couple of other, a couple of blockbusters. It had no stars in it, no recognizable stars except John Corbett, who was known a little bit from Sex and the City. But Nia Vardalos, who wrote it and based it on her one woman play, wrote it as a vehicle for her to get work, basically. And it it opened in a, in a few theaters and 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 grew and grew and grew. It was and in grew. theaters for weeks, almost a year actually, as it turns out. <laughs> really? I mean, and it and it was and it and it grossed you know several hundred million dollars. And it it was just it was studied in classes. In fact, I taught a class at UCLA in which we spent a unit studying why my big fat Greek wedding was such a success. I mean, I it was just it. it and and it was a remarkable thing, helped partly by. Rita Wilson and Tom Hanks, who who saw the play and and sort of became godparents of executive produced it, produced it and and um, and shepherded it and guided it through. But it was really the word of mouth. And it was the fact that that one, the original was about this young woman, a little bit awkward, a little bit goofy, who comes from this boisterous, huge Greek family who is upset that she's turning 30 and doesn't have a boyfriend and doesn't have a marriage prospect. And she's got bad hair and sort of, you know, is is pale and pasty and just doesn't have a life. And then she sort of gets herself together, sends herself to school over her family's objections because they want her to help in their restaurant where she has worked. And she sort of gets herself together, gets a job in her aunt's travel agency and sees for the second time John Corbett, who is a a mild-mannered, kindly teacher who she had seen once before in the restaurant, and they fall in love. What's notable about that one also is that it's unlike the common romantic comedy formula where it's boy meets girl, boy gets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl again. This film, it was really, the conflict was external. She and John Corbett, Tula is her character, and Ian, uh, they have a lovely romance. Once they get together, there's not a lot of threat from within. There's not a lot of conflict. It's the family. It's the family always meddling, always kind of telling them what to do, always giving them advice. And and that is what was what people related to. I think people felt that it was a universal story. Yeah, you didn't have to be Greek to, no. to get the family dynamic. 
dynamics. In fact, when when her script was going around, uh, people wanted studios wanted to adapt it and make it either Italian or Latino, or you know they they wanted to to change the ethnicity of it. And she said, "No, this is my movie, my story. I'm going to be in it, and I don't care if I don't get as much money as you know the rest of you want to do. But I'm going to do it my way." And so people related to it, even though they weren't Greek necessarily, whether they're Jewish or Italian or whatever, they could relate to it, and and it became you know an instant classic and. And it's very hard to to catch lightning in a bottle that way again and again. And the second one was, I think, 14 years later. Uh, Tulani and are still married. They have a, a teenager at this point, and they've got new challenges in their relationship. That one wasn't too bad. This one is thinner. They're... Uh, her father has died, the patriarch of the Greek family. She, uh, Tula, and her siblings go go to her sibling goes to they go to Greece for the first time to uh, do a family ritual that he had long wanted them to do, but it turns out to be this goofy scenario involving uh, a mayor of a, a tiny town and sheep and um, a lot of goofballs and a very thin plot. And and it, there is a wedding. It's a sort of peripheral wedding to the main plot, but it's just a lot of the jokes where thin. It feels like it's going back to the well of Big Fat Greek Wedding, but that well has sort of it's too bad because there were seven years to come up with something. I know, I know, and there's it's it's very well intentioned, but it just I think it doesn't hit the notes. It also it sort of ends up feeling like a medley of greatest hits from the first two. So it's you know I think people who love those movies and there are a lot of people that still that still love them and still can quote from it, you know, will <laughs> will go see it. I just don't think it was anywhere near as good as as the first. You won't be teaching second. a class I, on Big Fat Greek Wedding three. I will not. <laughs> uh, Christy, what did you think? Yeah, the well of Windex has definitely run dry oh, at this touche. point. Thank you. Um, yeah, this is this was kind of mind-boggling to me the whole way through. A lot of the choices, a lot of the editing is very erratic. I felt physically like anxious and uncomfortable a lot of the time because the the rhythms are so off and the editing choices are so weird and so counterintuitive to whatever moment she's trying to build whether it's comedy whether it's drama whether it's a poignant touching scene like she'll cut away from it to a different angle or she'll cut away to show some pan of the greek countryside out of nowhere i'm like why what are we doing here it feels so scattered and I often wondered whether I was watching it in the wrong aspect ratio, whether it was being projected wrong because like tops of heads and tops of buildings were getting cut off. There's a bit at a nude beach where these people swim up in the ocean and like the bottoms of their faces are cut off. And so I don't know whether it was like projected wrong or these are just really weird, bad framing choices, but it all felt kind of like slapped together erratically in a lot of ways. And Yes, it's a broad comedy. The whole point is that they are this big, broad family, but that joke is such a one-note joke, and they just keep hammering it over mm. and over again. And um, thank God for Andrea Martin. Andrea Martin shows up as <laughs> she's the, 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 aunt. the aunt, and she she's just such a weirdo and just so on her own wavelength and just will go there with her humor that she's so reliable and like thank god she is there to like she's the only source of any of the really genuine laughs here um yeah they have to wedge in all the supporting characters from the previous film so like joey fatone is back to say exactly two things um somewhere in here there is the possibility of some subtle messaging involving people of you know who are transgender or non-binary there's a character who's non-binary and they 
fold that in in a way that I thought was surprisingly subtle given the context. Um, there is a message about refugees that I thought was open-hearted in a way that is surprising and such a big wacky comedy. So there are, you can see the inklings of some of the ideas that she has here, but she still has to encompass everything and a love story. And as Lil mentioned, there's a wedding but we don't even see the wedding. Like even though it's in the title, it's 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 a lot. And I just hope there's not a fourth one. Like I think we're good now. <laughs> My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3 is rated PG-13, written and directed by Nia Vardalos, who stars in the film as well. It's in wide release. The horror thriller The Nun 2, also a sequel. The film directed by Michael Shavs. Uh, Akella Cooper is the writer along with Ian Goldberg and Richard Nang. Christy, what did you think of The Nun 2? I actually like this better than The Nun. Oh. Nun 1 was not great. They are all part of the Conjureverse, which is, of course, hugely profitable. The, all the Conjuring movies, these are prequels to the ones that we know with Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga. Now it's it's her sister, Thaisa Farmiga, who was in Nun 1 and also in this one. She plays Sister Irene. She has survived her showdown with the nun in the first film and is now called back into action when this evil creature rears its head once again at a boarding school, a former monastery that's now a boarding school for young women in this charming French village in the mid-1950s. And so... I found it actually a lot more effective. It's a lot more atmospheric, a lot moodier, you know, the the misty corridors and the the nighttime dusky lighting down these cobblestone streets in this French town and some of the ways in which the image of the nun reveals itself are really inspired. There's a really cool thing involving a, a newsstand that you can like kind of see where you're going with it but they build the tension of it quite effectively so that's all good but the thing with the nun is like you know she's coming right she's really creepy at first we saw her in a couple of the previous conjuring movies she got her own whole movie with the first nun and kind of like michael myers or jason or any legendary horror killer serial killer you know they're coming so like there's a dark stairway there's a hallway there's a door that creaks open slowly. She's going to be there. You know she's going to be there. And, and this, the, the fear factor of that increasingly has diminishing returns. But Thais of Armiga, alongside Storm Reed, they have a nice chemistry as these two young nuns who were called into action um, to try to save the day once again. And Thaisa Farmiga has a, the thing that her sister has where there's like a steeliness and a groundedness in her eyes and her presence where chaos is swirling all around her but you know she's going to hold it down and save the day so i like this better i don't know that we need any more nuns uh bonnie aaron you don't mean is, that literally right as, as a nun film we need nuns always but like with this nun in particular the evil nun bonnie aaron has a, a striking fearsome presence always but Kind of like the Greek wedding movies. I'm not sure we need any more of them. The Nun 2, starring Thaisa Farmiga. Michael Shavs is the director. Akela Cooper, Ian Goldberg, Richard Nang wrote it. It's rated R. The Nun 2 is in wide release. 
Also this week is the British comedic drama Scrapper, starring Lola Campbell and Harris Dickinson. It's written and directed by Charlotte Regan. Leo, what'd you think of Scrapper? Scrapper is a really remarkable directorial debut. It it's a quirky weird, delightful, offbeat film in which uh, a 12-year-old girl who lives alone in our flat in working-class London is uh, sort of reckoning with the fact that her mother died, but she's she's keeping all that in, and she makes money stealing bikes, keeping social workers away from her, and people don't really know that she lives alone. She she tells them that she's got an uncle uh, who she lives with, and she, she f- uh, finds a guy at a local convenience store and gets him to record some messages on her phone to pretend that he's her dad. <laughs> um, and she's very she's very scrappy, hence the title. She's she's just um, she's she's smart. She's clever. And um, but she's also, you know, she's alone. And then at a certain point, uh, someone shows up who is her estranged dad. Her her mother had passed away from cancer and her father is played by Harris Dickinson, who I loved from Triangle of Sadness. He's such a great actor. And she's never met him before. She's never known him. So he instantly feels like an intruder. But they have to forge a relationship that feels real and authentic. And to the film's credit, it does. There was some improvisation that that director Charlotte Regan did that that really work to help the dynamic of these two actors. Her style as a director is is not uh, it, it, it's it's not cliched at all. There's it's it's very fresh and alive. This movie feels incredibly alive. It, you can't put it into a box. Uh, Christy made a point earlier. We were talking that it's a lot like Paper Moon. Yeah, uh, yeah. And and it, it is sort of reminiscent of that. I think this this it doesn't it doesn't play to your emotions. It never panders to you. It never goes for pat explanations or anything like that. It's just a lovely, very alive forging of a relationship. It's actually the dad who is, has the sort of coming of age more than the daughter, which is kind of sweet in this film. And, I liked it a lot. And the young actor is strong, Lola oh, Campbell. Oh, she is terrific. What a find. Her absolute debut, and she is just excellent. She rises to the occasion, brings everything she's got, and she is a force to reckon with. She is, she's got a great future. We're talking about Charlotte Regan's new film, Scrapper, from the U.K. What do you think, Christy? I love Scrapper. This is the best movie of the week. It's probably going to end up on my top 10 list at the end of the year. I was so impressed by it, by these performances, by the chemistry these two have. Um, Lola Campbell, incredible. Like there's nothing cutesy or precocious about her. Just total authenticity. Just feels so believable in her toughness and her vulnerability and just the way she plays off of Harris Dickinson. I love the choices that Harris Dickinson makes between this and Beach Rats and Triangle of Sadness, as Lael mentioned, because he's just impossibly beautiful, but he uses that to choose these roles that upend your expectations of you know what someone like that who looks like that is going to be. There's more complexity there. There's, there's a darkness there. And um, the way that they find each other you know, it's, it's sort of hard one, but totally believable, but never mawkish. Like, doesn't that sound like every maudlin cliche, like reconciliation story where there's been estrangement and they've got to realize that they need each other? That all happens, right. but it feels so true. There are these kind of playful little That's asides great. that are really, really funny and uh, it's so surprisingly touching by the end. Yeah, just a a tremendous little indie gem. Go find it. Scrapper is the film. It's unrated. Landmark's new art theater in West L.A. More to come on Film Week. 
Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with critics Leo Lowenstein and Christy Lemire. Up next is the comedic fantasy from Chile, El Conde, or The Count. The film is directed by Pablo Lorraine. It's written by Guillermo Calderon and Pablo Lorraine. And uh, the film, which is uh, eventually streaming on Netflix, but in theaters for this weekend, um, posits the Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet as a vampire. And uh, Christy, share with us your thoughts about El Conde. Oh, it is so imaginative and so impossibly beautifully, lustrously gorgeous in black and white shot by the great cinematographer, Ed Lachman. But yeah, the um, Pablo Lorraine, Chilean director and co-writer here, imagines that quite literally Pinochet is a vampire. You know, after actually decimating this country and like bleeding it dry. We imagine that he's literally a vampire, which is kind of a clever idea. And so the idea is that he has actually been around for about 250 years, but he's ready to die. He's just done. He's ready to die. And so the family in sort of like succession style, they're (laughs) all useless and uh, living off of his ill-gotten gains uh, they all come together to try to like pick apart his his empire but in the midst of them comes this young nun beautiful swan-like young nun played by paula Luxinger, who pretends to be an accountant who is actually there to destroy him and the idea of all of this and the operatic nature of it, and yet the really gruesome brutality of it simultaneously is a fascinating mix for a long time. And I love the look of it, it's constantly beautiful. What happens when this one character gets bitten and has this like flight across Patagonia is so jaw-droppingly gorgeous. It's almost like this person is like part of an ice skating pairs team and is being held aloft but by nothing, like stumbling and falling and twisting and it's it's breathtaking. And there are moments like that within the brutality that are, are quite astonishing, but I think it runs out of steam after a little while. Like once you get past the kind of cool concept of, oh, what if Pinochet were a vampire? It, it kind of, it drags a bit and it just feels emotionally chilly and a little detached. I like what Lorraine does as far as trying to dismantle the mythos of figures like 
uh, Princess Diana in Spencer or like Jackie Kennedy in Jackie. And he's doing that here as well. And there's a claustrophobia about the fame that is very similar there. Um, but it kind of runs out of gas for me eventually. Uh, Jaime Vadel is the star of the film El Conde Leo. I am right there with Christy. I thought it was a tremendous technical achievement and in many of the below the line things in terms of score, cinematography, uh, production design, it was gorgeous. It was a gorgeous film. Uh, and, and Ed Lockman, who has worked with Todd Haynes on films like Carol and, uh, and and Far From Heaven, is just a tremendous cinematographer. He does some work here that is so gorgeous with this black and white cinematography. It's, it's, it's rapturous. Whether you're a film critic or just a movie lover, it is so beautiful to watch. And I don't think we'll see anything... It's hard to imagine anything on that scale uh, in in terms of the cinematography this year that we'll see. But I, I agree, it 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 meanders a bit. I'm not sure I understood all of it. It's it's darkly funny, but it's not always as funny as it could be. Some of it gets old. The Pinochet character keeps dining on human hearts, and and we see that for over and over, and that sort of gets a little dull, if you can believe that. And it just, um, it gets, it, it sort of, it feels curiously bloodless for a movie where there's so much bloodletting. Yeah. And, you know, and, and vampirism, of course, has been a metaphor for forever about so many things, about control, about power, about sexuality, whatever. Here it's, you know, it's it's quite a simple parallel for Pinochet as a dictator and, and all that he did to Chile. But it is it leaves you feeling cold. And I felt that way with Jackie. I felt that way with Spencer. I admire very much Lorraine's talent as a director, but I don't really don't like it. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. El Conde is the film from director and co-writer Pablo Lorraine. It's rated R in Spanish with English subtitles, and it's at Lemley's Royal Theater in West L.A. at the NoHo Lemley in North Hollywood, and it begins next Friday streaming on Netflix. A Million Miles Away tells the story of Jose Hernandez, who was born in Mexico, uh, grew up uh, with his parents, and even he at a young age doing field work here in California, and from his farm worker background becomes uh, a a member of the space shuttle crew. It's uh, a remarkable uh, journey that he makes, an inspiring film starring Michael Pena as Hernandez. The film is directed by Alejandra Marquez. Abea, who also co-wrote the screenplay. Leo, what did you think of A Million Miles Away? So this is, you know, really an incredible true story, and it is and it is very, very inspiring. It's, I mean, it, it's remarkable that someone who began as a migrant farm worker could have graduated through tenacity and hard work and just sheer determination and the support of his family and, and, and so on and so forth to become part of the space program. And so his story is is remarkable. I I don't dispute that. I think the film is good in a lot of ways. It hits a lot of very strong emotional notes. Sometimes it ends up being a little cliched. It it sort of falls back on some of the tropes that we see in these inspirational films. And I I wish that it had sort of maybe not done that as much. But I don't want to fault it because or too much because the story is so remarkable. And you know, there's a, a line near the near the end where you know. 
Hernandez's character talks about how no one better than a migrant, than a farm worker who has looked so far into the ground to to rise up into the heavens, you know, into into space, like what, what could have been a better or more apt kind of trajectory for him. And so I thought it was a really beautiful story, a little bit hack, and Pena uh, was a little old for the part maybe at the beginning. I thought he did a good job, though, of playing yes. the, 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 uns, the sort of uh, awkwardness. He's this brilliant kid who's yeah. also a little bit awkward. I, and I, love I thought the teacher. he did a good job of that. There's a, there's a thing where he has a teacher when he's young who believes in him. It's very sweet. And it's really sweet. It's love a that. very, very sweet film. By the way, we are scheduled to interview uh, Jose Hernandez on Film Week next wow. week, as well as the director of the film. We're talking about A Million Miles Away. Christy, what did you think? Yeah, it is a nice movie. It's an inspiring movie about an inspiring story told in an inspiring way. But I found it kind of frustratingly safe, you know, especially given that this is a story of a man who risked everything, you know, his his life, his comfortable life as an engineer, his home, his wife, his five children, like he he risked losing it all to to pursue his dreams and go into space. That's a big deal. And the film kind of hits all of the feel-good notes that you expect that it will. I understand why that is because it's a PG rated movie that's trying to appeal to the largest possible audience. It's a very family friendly movie, but it just feels really safe. And Pena, as Lael mentioned, is like late forties playing a guy who's 22. It's a little distracting for a long time that he's playing the same person the whole way through. Um, But as Hernandez, he is like singularly upbeat and kind hearted and determined and there's not a whole lot of complexity in the depiction of this person. The, the only vaguely negative thing is that he's gone a lot because he is training to be an astronaut. And so, again, it's like, it's happy, it's kind of hearted. But then there are some moments that are like undeniably important. Like the representation reflected here is undeniably important. The like not so subtle racism that he encounters all along the way, like, the receptionist at the lab where he works assumes he's a janitor and gives him the big ring of keys and thinks he's going to go change out the toilet paper rolls. And he's like, uh, no, I'm an engineer. And he encountered that over and over and over again, being underestimated because of his background. So it's important to show that too, that he, he overcame all of that. So it's a nice story. It's an inspiring story. Good for families to watch together, but kind of safe. A Million Miles Away is rated PG. It's at Lemley's NoHo Theater in North Hollywood and then starts uh, streaming on Prime Video next Friday the 15th. And again, we are scheduled to talk with uh, the real Jose Hernandez, the astronaut, as well as the director of the film, Alejandra Marquez Abella. It's Film Week on L.A. is 89.3, and an undeniably complex figure is the acclaimed writer Joyce Carol Oates. A Body in the Service of Mind is the documentary about her. She's written more than 100 books, including Blonde, We Were the Mulvaney's, Them. Uh, This documentary gives a sense of what shaped her as a writer. It's directed by Stieg Bjorkman, uh, and the film will eventually be available on Amazon and Apple TV+. Leo, what did you think of this documentary about Oates? So a big part of this film, I, I, I liked it in, in general. A big part of the of the focus of the documentary is the fact that the director, Stieg Bjorkman, uh, was a fan and a friend later, first a fan, then a friend of Joyce Carol Oates, and approached her to for about eight years to make a documentary and she kept refusing and refusing and declining and and finally she gave in 
And so the film begins with his asking her, so why did you finally agree? And she says, well, you know, my my husband said I should do it and you kind of wore me down and I don't know, why not? But she is, Larry, as you, as you mentioned, a really unusual, unique person. She is very much an introvert, very self-effacing and a little bit uncomfortable talking about herself. I think she, she actually says in the film, there's tons of archival footage interviews with her where she, she talks about how she would rather let her books, her writing speak for it for itself. And she but she's really quite articulate also about how books are a portal to another world and how they afford an opportunity for a reader to be transported somewhere in a way that's unique. And I thought it was a kind of a beautifully rendered documentary of someone who whose work has been undeniably influential and important. Also Blackwater, another book she wrote about the Chappaquiddick, um, just a just a really, really interesting figure. Well, and it's fascinating to me when you have someone who is as much a public figure as she is, who is shy. And that was my experience when I interviewed her a number of years ago. She was in studio with me and took a little bit to kind of get her to to come out a little bit more. And it just struck me because we we tend to think of the big personalities mm-hmm. as the people who are, uh, you know, Norman Mailer types mm-hmm. and, you know, Stephen King. And, and in this case, um, a very different personality. And I'm glad the film seems like it really captured her. Yeah, I think it was appropriate. I think she would like it. <laughs> Joyce Carol Oates, A Body in the Service of Mind, directed by Steve Bjorkman at Lemley's Royal in West L.A. And it is available on Amazon and Apple TV+. Plus. It's unrated. Uh, at the comedic mystery Rotting in the Sun plays the story of uh, Chilean filmmaker Sebastian Silva, uh, who, by the way, is the star of the film and the director and co-screenwriter. So he's playing a version of himself uh, locked in a self-loathing spiral uh, set in Mexico. <laughs> Christy, what did you think of Rotting in the Sun? I really like the ambition of it. I like what it is trying to do here because not only is Sebastian Silva playing a version of himself, but this influencer, Jordan Firstman, this Instagram influencer, is also playing a version of himself. And it's how they meet at a gay beach in Mexico and how they get intertwined and influence one another's lives. And I don't really want to say a whole lot about where it goes from there, but it's sort of poking holes in the notion of fame and the superficiality of Hollywood and of social media fame. And they're both playing very exaggerated versions, very knowingly so, of of who they are. And it has to do a lot with death and being hot and ridiculous performance art and using the power of social media for bullying, but maybe also for good. Really, the MVP here is Catalina Saavedra, who plays the housekeeper in the apartment building where Sebastian Silva, quote unquote, lives and works. It's also his studio. He is stuck in a rut. She is his housekeeper. She sees him very casually doing ketamine constantly and just falling asleep for hours and hours at a time. And her role and how it evolves over the course of the film is really the most interesting part of the whole movie. And just the the visceral way in which you see her increasing anxiety as she gets sucked into these people's lives in ways that she really does not want to. Um, Jordan Firstman is very funny. He is kind of outrageous and knowingly so and has a way with 
uh, tossed aside one liner here or there. So he is quite an engaging presence, um, but probably a, a little bit of him goes a long way. And I'm sure he would acknowledge that himself. Um, so it's uh, sort of meta, but entertainingly so. Rotting in the Sun from Chilean filmmaker Sebastián Silva, who plays a version of himself. So he's the star, he's the director, and he's the co-screenwriter of the unrated film. It's in English and Spanish. You can see it at the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema in downtown Los Angeles. And next Friday, it starts streaming on the movie service. Coming up on Film Week, we'll be talking with the author of kind of a big deal how Anchorman stayed classy and became the most iconic comedy of the 21st century. Saul Osterlitz will be joining us to talk about his book, about the making of the film, how it became very popular, and also about the way his students react to it when he shows it to them uh, very early in the class. It's all coming up on Film Week here on L.A. as 89.3, back in just 90 seconds. The LAist Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAist.com sweeps.